the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Uh, (laughs) Today's show uh, has so many spit takes, so many terrible opportunities for puns. I'm I'm Ben. Noel, I, I think people should not lower their expectations for this show today, but maybe they should lower their expectorations. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is I, Ben Knoll. Uh, and I'm thoroughly grossed out uh, after reading about this. Uh, today, you're going to get all kinds of stuff. You're going to get sputum. You're going to get sputum cups. You're going to get expectorant on the floor of streetcars. You're going to get uh, tuberculosis, droplets, spreading disease all across the land. Because you know what, Ben? If there's one thing we can take away from this show, uh, all by and large, all in, is that People are gross. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the only non-gross people we know, super producer Casey Pegram, is actually not going to be on the show today. Oh, Ben, what a horror. What a fake out. Oh, my God. <laughs> he said uh, he says it's because he's making some major moves. Uh, but I, I think at least part of this is because Casey is not a fan of uh, spittle, drool, slobber. What was the other word? Sputum? Sputum. Sputum. Yeah, I like to Sputum. say it. Yeah, yeah. Expectorant, phlegm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Loogies. Loogies. Oh, Lug- I like that too. Um, yeah, there's like, you know, a rose by any other name would uh, be as gross. Um, and today we're talking about all of these things uh, in terms of the tuberculosis epidemic of the late 1800s. Yeah, yep, that's correct. If you lived in early 20th century America, the leading cause of death in your country was not heart attack, right? It wasn't a cardiac, cardiovascular stuff. It wasn't uh, something like cancer. Instead, it was tuberculosis. And the public health experts of the time were aware that spitting could become, you know, could function as a vector of contagion. So today's story is about 
uh, spitting. Shout out to Gabe Luzier, by the way, because he did a little uh, a little title in the research here that I love of poop and politics mm-hmm. prologue. That's right. Um, it turns out, you know, I, I don't know how you feel. I, I love a, I like a good spit as much as the next person. There's something a little satisfying about it, but not something you would typically do in, in polite company. Uh, not the case uh, in the late 1800s. It was like super popular. There was like a, like a spit culture almost. Um, men would spit in like courtrooms, inside buildings, on streetcars. There would apparently be like puddles of like spit on the floor of streetcars aka you know like what, what do you call those like like trolleys right isn't that what a streetcar has been sure yeah yeah and to the point where women's dresses were always in danger of like dragging through this disgusting dribble um but it, here's the thing it, in the late 1800s courtrooms were considered like off limits for for proper ladies that's because uh, the men would be you know in there milling around smoking their cigars and spitting willy-nilly um and women this this would be a sight that would you know cause a, a fine lady to clutch her very pearls um and you know unless of course that woman was a sex worker uh, or something like that again this is just me kind of like uh summarizing the parlance of of the day uh mm. felice batian who's a law professor and legal historian at the chicago kent college of law said a fine woman did not appear in court yeah given the uh given the widespread pretty blatant misogyny of the time the concept of being a sex worker was also equated with being an actor or the, an actress, they would have said at that time, or a dancer. And so this was a place where people of low reputation went if they were women. Uh, the, only, the only way a uh, respected female member of society would be in court is if they were a victim or a witness. And always, you know, unfortunately, women who were victimized, their honor was on trial in these cases as well. And things started, something weird happened in 1884. Newspapers went public with the story that a group of women from Manhattan had delivered documentation wrapped up like a present with a bow to a grand jury. This is also according to some of Batlin's work in Akron Law Review. These women were members of the Ladies' Health Protective Association, or HLIPA, which kind of sounds like a, a hawk loogie sound on, on its own. Uh, <laughs> it's a good onomatopoeia. There. Yeah, right. They were bringing a lawsuit against a guy named Michael Kane. Not the same guy. It's a K-A-N-E for his surname. Michael Kane. Uh, the reason they were bringing a suit against Mike is because he owned this gigantic manure dump in their neighborhood. And when we say gigantic, Noel, how big are we talking? Like several city blocks, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, and it wasn't just for fun. It was like apparently quite the uh, the money maker, quite the earner. This manure dump because he had like I think upwards of a hundred employees that would go around collect all the poop from various stables around you know the city and then dump it in this giant uh, manure dump, and then they'd sell he'd sell it as fertilizer. And I saw a figure that said it generated something like three hundred k a year in. Late 1800s dollars? What's that inflation calculate to, Ben? Boop. 
$8 million. Today, Nolan, it's $8 million worth of fertilizer. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That's a, that's a lot of shit, my friend. Poop ingots. You know, pennies. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so this, you're right. It's it's huge. Two city blocks, thirty feet tall, and it's eight million dollars worth of poop. Which reminds me, it's like a very gross, real world example of that uh, that that sketch in the excellent sketch show, The State, with Barry and Levon and two hundred and forty dollars mm-hmm. worth of pudding. Do you remember that one? Yes, I do remember that one. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of pudding. <laughs> um, but, the, you know, that's the thing. The, there weren't the kinds of uh, health codes that we have today that would prevent something like this from just being out in the open. Um, people would capitalize on that. I mean, it was cities in general during these uh, this period were absolutely disgusting. Oh, yeah. There would be flowing sewage through the streets, like dead animal carcasses littered everywhere you look. Again, the spitting, uh, the, you know, just the apps. Can you imagine the smell? We talked about the big stink of London. Mm-hmm. You know, this would be in that same vein. So this package delivered to the grand jury, literally wrapped in a bow from the Ladies Health Protective Association, or Hlipa, as you say, L-H-P-A, um, they were suing this mm-hmm. gentleman because they claimed in in the uh, the documentation that the smell was very disagreeable. It actually kind of escalated. It went from very disagreeable to perfectly frightful and then finally simply unendurable. Mm-hmm. Um, well, which was it, ladies? I'm sorry, not to, not to be a stickler here. Um, but they claimed they could not open their windows to enjoy the fresh air, which admittedly probably wouldn't have been super fresh to begin with, but probably would have been better off without the giant pile of horse uh, manure. They also felt as though it posed a danger to the health of their families. Uh, And they just, they, they classified it. And this is a real thing, very real thing continues to be today in the uh, legal system as a public nuisance. Yeah, this is important because this puts it in a legal framework. A public nuisance is a real thing in uh, litigation. So the basic argument here is that if you were calling something a public nuisance, you're saying the offending activity ruins other people's ability to enjoy their stuff, their land, their property. These were really common in the 20th century or at the turn of the 20th century because of industrialization. We're seeing huge factories. We're seeing railroads. We're seeing all the sounds, the smells, the gas, and, and all the pollutants, right, that are washing up on the edges of residential neighborhoods. This is not the first time. Michael Caine had faced accusations of this sort. The thing is, he never really got in trouble. The shit really never stuck to him because his brother-in-law was a New York state senator. So at the time, people suspected there was some corruption, and this was not a conspiracy theory. This was, this was pretty plausible. So therefore, the HIPAA people, they have a, they, they're fighting on two fronts. One, they have to fight off the filth in the city streets, but then they have to fight off the figurative filth of corruption in the political system. And so they do a really clever marketing campaign and their group grows. So it starts with like a baker's dozen of concerned citizens, and then it gets to almost 300 members between the time of the grand jury and the time that Kane actually goes to court. And this is all prologue. We're getting to the spitting part, but you need to know this part first. 
And to make a long story short, this was an effective tactic, you know, organizing into this, you know, safety in numbers, I guess. And like I said, clearly there were a lot of people that had skin in this game. The establishment, let's call it, tried to kind of gaslight this group out of existence by calling them a bunch of crazy dames, you know, Uh, dainty and picky, you know. Oh, my goodness. Such terms of abuse. Who doesn't like a good poop, my asthma? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Everybody, Um, you know, and, and they were being irrational, unreasonable women. Oh, God. The, the misogyny is about as thick as the smell of that manure pile. Um, and uh, but, but it worked. You know, gaslighting be damned. The nearly 300 members of the LHPA not only got the manure pile uh, you know, deep sixed, they also took it a little further. They were able to, there apparently was a board of health God knows what they were actually doing if they were allowing manure piles to just flourish, but they did pressure the Board of Health to deny any future permits for manure dumps within the city limits. That seems just like beyond reasonable well, to me. Well, fun fact, at this point, Board of Health did have uh, quotation marks around health. That's that's a fact until the 1970s. <laughs> Nobody check it. Nobody just accept that one. Yeah, <laughs> so anyway, exactly. yeah, this is, there, there's an interesting subversion of these uh, socioeconomic roles that women were thrust in at the time because the traditional expectation at this time in the late 1800s is still like, you are a woman, so you have to be in the kitchen or you have to be doing laundry. You keep house and leave the outside stuff to the dudes. But what they did is flipped the script in a, in a very real and impactful way. And they said, you know, think of us as like, think of the city as the house that we keep. We are municipal housekeepers. So now that we have our victory over this gigantic mound of crap in our neighborhood, let's fight other health concerns. And they weren't doing this for reasons of ego or reasons of adventure seeking. They were doing this because, as as we pointed out earlier, in the 1800s, cities were just disgusting places, at least in the West. I mean, carcasses of dead animals, of course, but also people are openly defecating in the street. The rise of tenement buildings has led to a ton of overcrowding. And when there's a lot of overcrowding and there's not a lot of hygiene, what spreads? Disease. What's the most dangerous disease? We mentioned it at the very top of the show, tuberculosis. It was Mm -hmm. raging like wildfire. Yeah, that's the one you'll surely know from, you know, films uh, Tombstone. where Tombstone, Doc sure, you, you, yeah, you, you'll <laughs> a little dry cough <laughs> into the hanky <laughs> and you pull it away and there's blood. It's a classic movie uh, trope uh, where you know someone has TV. Also, beautifully used um, and subverted in an interesting way in the movie Parasite. Highly recommend mm-hmm. anyone who hasn't yeah, seen yeah. that. Check it out immediately. But yeah, tuberculosis was running uh, wide rife, roughshod all over the poor citizens of these, you know, teeming metropolises, right? And it spreads the same way uh, our beloved COVID-19 spreads through those droplets that are aerosolized when a person coughs or sneezes. Uh, and it just kind of hangs in the air and people that walk through that, you know, sneeze cloud um, mm-hmm. can breathe it in and then it, 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 it they become infected. Uh, this was in the 19th century tuberculosis, the single 
uh, leading cause of death among New Yorkers. And that's according to Anne Garner, who is a curator of rare books and manuscripts at the New York Academy of Medicine Library, and also the co-curator of the Museum of the City of New York's exhibition, Germ City, Microbes and the Metropolis. Germ City. <laughs> it feels like it's a it's a kiss song. It's I agree. Really, it is bad. Yeah, yeah, the levity aside... The stats are sobering and terrifying. Uh, tuberculosis killed one in every seven people in Europe and the U.S. over the span of the 19th century. And this problem was even worse if you were a city dweller. Just between 1810 and 1815, the space of five years, tuberculosis, which was then known as, as consumption, was uh, responsible for about 25% of the recorded deaths in the Big Apple. And about two years before the before Lippa fought Poop Mountain, which I'm just going to call that now, uh, there was a German bacteriologist named Robert Koch who had figured out the germ responsible for tuberculosis. It's Mycobacterium tuberculosis, and he had he had isolated this. Mm -hmm. He'd taken some samples. He would go on to win the Nobel Prize a few years later in 1905 for his work here, and he figured out how this stuff was spreading. He said consumption is not just a miasma. It's not just hanging out with people or shaking hands. It's when the phlegm and spit that you cough up is transmitted by, you know, like, <coughs> or <coughs> uh, into the air and, and around other people. And this meant, in his mind, public spitting or expectoration, expectorating, is spreading the disease. We, get, we should pause here, Noel. Um, because, you know, there's a stereotype about the South, which is that a lot of people in the rural South are always uh, hawking and spitting. Have you run into that stereotype? Well, I think uh, part of it, Ben, might be because of uh, I've never really seen it much outside the South. But, you know, dip tobacco mm -hmm. where you, you hold it in your lip and you literally spit disgusting brown tobacco juice, uh, you know, in a cup. Still gross, but mm -hmm. sometimes just, you know. In, in on the ground, baseball players do it, or they don't anymore. I think they used to, and it was like kind of like frowned upon. And now supposedly they're just supposed to chew gum. Uh, but yeah, I've definitely known some uh, some 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 good old boy types that like a good tobacco dip here and there. I think that's probably largely where that um, reputation comes from. Um, but it, it turns out not really a southern thing at all. It was much mm -hmm. more of like a like a city thing, like a New York thing. Like I was saying at the top of the show, I mean, people would just spit everywhere inside courthouses, you know. On the streetcars on the street, you know, um, and it was just kind of accepted. And it was like you, you, it was almost like considered like a civil right to be able to spit in public, you know, it's it's uh, I was going to say expectorated. It's uh, it's still normal in part various parts of the world because there are these longstanding um, medical beliefs or medicinal beliefs. And the idea that is you're, if your body is generating this stuff, you have to spit it out for your health. So you'll go to different parts of the world where it's just very, very casually people are spitting in the streets. But you're right. Uh, you're right. This is not this is not just a Southern thing. Don't be fooled by the stereotypes. Rampant public spitting is spreading tuberculosis. There's a reason that one in seven people are dying of this disease. Uh, when Coke links tuberculosis, this particular infection to this particular bacterium, he kind of tees up 
public health organizations and movements to try to, to focus in on spitting as a way of preventing the spread of tuberculosis. So this is where we go back to New York. Like you said, man, like we said at the top, like cities are, cities are ground zero for this infection. There's no cure for it at this point. Uh, but New York has the distinction of becoming the first city to fight tuberculosis by banning spitting. I don't like, I know we have to talk about how this came about, but I'm also really interested to learn how it was enforced. How do you just, do you just watch everybody? Yeah. And uh, once again, the Ladies Health Protective Association comes to the rescue with their, you know, uh, their numbers thriving at this point. Um, and just want to point out, too, this is pre-women's suffrage. So, like, I mean, the, not only are women disrespected, not allowed in the courthouse, whatever, you know, the whole, like, all the misogyny behind be a proper lady and all that, um, they can't even actually vote. So these types of women's collectives and groups affecting actual change uh, is a big deal because they didn't even have the right to vote. This is the only way they could make their voices heard. And th this is a very la lasting legacy, as we'll be able to see, because they tackled this tuberculosis epidemic head on by targeting the spitting. And this wasn't something that was on the radar of like even just the, the, the actual officials in quote unquote public health or quotes around the health, as you said, Ben. So they were able to uh, kind of lobby uh, groups like Brooklyn's Anti-Tuberculosis Committee and the National Tuberculosis Association to get some of these protective measures in place. Think mask mandates, only this is like a step further. I mean, it's, you know, wearing a mask is annoying, but how hard is it to not spit? You know, that's something that we can all do to contribute. Uh, really surprised this mm -hmm. actually hasn't been more of a discussion around COVID. But I guess the thing is, just not as I mean, this is really like a spitting epidemic like people were just doing it left right it was absolutely part of like the culture um so yeah they start they they make some headway and they're able to get a city ordinance passed that made expectoration illegal in public uh, and along with that comes a, a very kind of clever ad campaign the idea of beware the careless spitter Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded. 
and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. There's something I want to stop and highlight here because there are other ways, astute listeners, fellow ridiculous historians, you'll notice there are other ways of spreading these kinds of infections whenever the human body is emitting something in aerosol form. So coughing, right? Uh, And we'll get into how, how this works with tuberculosis. Sneezing. Those are two things that also can spread this stuff, but they're not... They're not the focus of the campaign because unlike coughing and unlike sneezing, spitting is a voluntary thing. Yes, You don't just accidentally poo and hit the spittoon. Um, And I'm I'm still thinking of that character in American Tale 2, Fievel Goes West. There's a spitting thing in there. I I can't remember. I'll look at it. Well, there's a lot of spitting uh, things in cartoons like around the Old West with Bugs Bunny and stuff. And every time they hit that spittoon, it always makes like a ding. Like a nice yeah. little satisfying ping sound. I think I think for most of us growing up, seeing those cartoons is is the closest we got to seeing spittoons. But mm-hmm. but that's because we have the benefit of being alive in a time after this campaign. Because you know, there were all these things. Like you said, there was PR literature, borderline propaganda stuff that said things like spitting is dangerous and decent and against the law. No spit. No consumption. And you would walk around and you'd see posters that talked about the dangers and the low nature of spitting, but they didn't just talk about spitting. They had other things that they warned about. So they were talking about how you also shouldn't be drunk in public, which when you think about it would be a good way to stem the tide of tuberculosis at least a little bit because if people are drinking and they're used to spitting, they're probably not going to see a poster and stop when they're inebriated. So they they have all these different warnings, but at first they don't really work because people still are spitting left and right. It's intractable. It's a New York habit. Hey, it's a big apple. I'm walking here. I'm spitting here. That's right. That's right. It's It really does remind me of the whole mask thing. And, and it, what it requires is kind of shifting enough of the public sentiment to make, you know, the majority of people shame the minority of people who want to continue to do whatever they want to do. Right. Same with the masks. You know, once you have businesses signing up and not letting people come in, if they don't wear the mask, then you, you people start paying attention. Or once you have enough people giving this the, you know, uh, side eye to folks that aren't wearing the mask, then people maybe start paying attention. Um, again, it seems to me like such a voluntary thing, spitting, that you could just easily stop, especially if you thought maybe it would help keep people from getting sick. But as we know, people are very stubborn and stuck mm-hmm. in their ways. So it required uh, taking it a little further uh, with things like like fines, levying like significant fines, like a buck at the time, which would have been around 30 bucks today. Uh, still seems pretty minor, but uh, it, at least it's something, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's there's also the formation of this thing called the sanitary squad. They're like, like Ghostbusters, but spitbusters. Mm-hmm. And they would round up hundreds of people at one time and bring them to court where they would get where they would get these fines, which you said, you know, they're on average actually a little less than a dollar. But 
we have to keep in mind, in 1896, $1 was the equivalent of 30 bucks today. That's right. So, so it's still a hassle, and you're still dragged to court, and you still have to pay 30 bucks. So all in all, between 1896 and 1910, there were more than 2,500 people arrested under this no-spitting statute. And New York was going really hard on the paint. There are other there were other cities that had something like this, but New York was far, far and above the uh, main city enforcing this. At least in terms of arrests, like numbers, least, they, they, they were. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I mean by enforcing. In 1910, the NTA, National Tuberculosis Association, said less than half of the cities in the U.S. with any kind of anti-spitting law actually enforced it. It was kind of like the way, what's another law that's not often enforced? Jaywalking isn't enforced in a lot of cities. How are you going to do it? That's right. And um, it, it, it it continued to be a pretty divisive issue. Uh, letters to the editors, you know, um, public kind of forums and discussions. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of resistance to it. Uh, again, like I said, saying that it was somehow, uh, you know, like a boot on the neck of people's uh, individual freedoms, um, especially as the punishments got a little harsher and there were like, you know, raids on subway platforms where they would round up groups of spitters. Every time I say spitter, I think of that Dilophosaurus dinosaur from Jurassic Park. You know, they called it the spitter. Um, that would have been a cool mascot for an anti-spitting campaign in, in, our, in our modern times. I don't think they knew it existed. No, no, probably not. I'm saying in our modern, if we, if we were going to launch this again, which I am all about. I think, you know, this is something that we should revisit. But the LHPA uh, handed out literature to try to educate people about why this is, like, good for you. This is good for everyone. And attitudes began to change because their campaigns were effective. Spitting became seen as unsanitary and gross and just plain rude and uh, an actual uh, kind of affront to to civilized society. Right, Ben? Yeah, that's correct. So we see see this this, uh, kind of contrarian faction rise up and say that this is an affront to personal liberty. Uh, they they warn that this is going to lead to some kind of dystopian uh, Big Brother situation, although they didn't have the phrase Big Brother at that point. And uh, they also go so far as to say, well, the science isn't really there. So Hlippa uh, and some other places fight back. Uh, they They write more literature. They create these slogans. They go all out on this marketing campaign. They have volunteers cleaning the streets, you know, spit squads. And once spitting is framed as being kind of low class and unsanitary, uh, more and more dudes start thinking, okay, well, it's it's madly and courageous for me to confront these ne'er-do-wells mm-hmm. spitting left and right, expectorating, the city is not a spittoon, I imagine them saying. That's a great line. I hope one of them said that. Uh, and then city officials started installing spittoons kind of like the way you would see um, like a, a smoking section of a place outside. And so they would say, okay, if you have to spit, then go spit here. And were there people who were like, I spit where I want. It's my right as a resident of the big spit napple. Yeah, there were probably a few, but they were losing the fight of public opinion. We know what you're all wondering. How effective was this? 
I don't know. I don't, yeah. Let's see. Let's see. How well, that? it's one of these things where, like, we know that uh, with the the current coronavirus, that the transmission is almost entirely happens through these aerosolized droplets. So yeah, sure. If if some if you got spit on by somebody, or you happen to catch a fleck of somebody's spit directly in your mouth, I'm sorry. I know that's gross. That'd be bad news. But typically, you know, spitting is is pretty relatively contained. I mean, it can, you know, infectious diseases can live in spit on non-porous surfaces for longer. So, but again, it, but it would require you to like actually physically interact with it and then, you know, touch your hand to your mouth or whatever. You'd have to be a really messy spitter, uh, just like, you know, to actually aerosolize those droplets and get them in the state that would be the most effective in transmitting the disease. So, yeah, I think indirectly it probably had a positive impact uh, on, you know, um, lowering the cases of tuberculosis. But it, I don't think it was as I don't think spitting was as much of a direct cause of it as people might have thought. Right. Yeah. If someone if someone spat in your face at this time, then it could transmit tuberculosis. But if someone spat at your shoe or, you know, on the ground and you walked by later, the TB probably would not have been able to assume an aerosol state again. It would just be there on the ground in the dirt. Uh, but the thing is, even if this ban on spitting didn't directly reduce the transmission of disease, because again, you know, people are still, they, you can't put a ban on people coughing up this phlegm and saliva. That's just a symptom of the infection. Right. And, and something that you need to do to rid right. yourself of it. It's important, like you were saying earlier, like coughing that stuff up is what helps you get better. And the thing is that even if this didn't directly stop TB transmission, it did teach an important lesson in public health. And that's why during the 1918 to 1919 flu pandemic, when the virus, the flu virus spread via aerosol, transmission. Uh, that's why uh, spitting was banned during this infection as well. We knew that spitting played some sort of role, that these things that were being coughed up and emitted from other human beings could be vehicles for infection. So the, the spitting ban also probably had an indirect effect to help prevent the spread of disease overall. Because people weren't spitting and people were kind of thinking more about public hygiene in general. And, you know, it's a it's a good step in the right direction. Still pretty gross. But these things called spittoons, like you're saying, or cuspidors, which I love uh, that word, um, were installed all around the city. And then you would have these little like personal sputum bottles. Mm -hmm. uh, one popular one was called the Blue Henry. It was made out of cobalt blue glass. Uh, and it was manufactured by um, a gentleman by the name of Peter Detweiler, who was a German uh, sanatorium pioneer um, who had himself uh, been stricken with tuberculosis. And so these were basically like, think of like a flask that you would carry around with you and spit your disgusting phlegm into when your lungs were, you know, bothering you or whatever. Um, and it was like almost like a, a, an accessory. <laughs> it became sort of fashionable. You could get them in different sizes and different colors and shapes made of different materials. 
Uh, there'd be some that would have like a spring-loaded lid on them that could open from both sides. So you could spit into like a little funnel on one side and then unscrew the bottle top to clean it. Because these, you know, non-perishable ones did have to be cleaned. Otherwise, it would defeat the purpose and they themselves would be a vector of, of disease. Um, then there was like efforts from public health uh, departments to pass out kind of um, more uh, disposable sputum cups, right, that you would get for free. Like when you stepped onto the streetcar, for example, you might be, <laughs> you might get one passed to you. Uh, and they were pretty effective too. Uh, so there was still plenty of spitting going on. They just sort of reframed it. Uh, but, you know, we don't have spittoons today. So I guess people just don't spit as much anymore. You don't hear about things like sputum cups. What gives, Ben? Well, let's go back. So we're talking about 1916, a number of cities, L.A., Boston, Seattle. They're the ones who are, they and other cities are handing out these disposable uh, cups. They're they're paper cups. Uh, A lot of this information is coming to us courtesy of Shaughnessy Farrow over at Mental Floss, who wrote a great, great article about the anti-spitting campaigns. Uh, The doctors of the time, noted that there was a, a stark difference between the disposable and reusable cups or flask. The reusable ones have to be cleaned with a strong disinfectant, and they need to be cleaned, according to the contemporaneous medical advice, by rinsing them with a lye solution and boiling them in water. As for the junk itself, the phlegm and the gunk and the drool and the spittle and the lugiosity, I'll just make up that word here. The lugiosity of it, that stuff had to be burned, and anything contaminated with TB had to be burned as well. Uh, Shout out to the heartbreaking young adult uh, book, The Velveteen Rabbit, which I believe also is about this. Oh, oh my God, Ben, you're triggering me right now. I forgot about that. That was so sad. Yeah, I I don't remember exactly what happens, but I do remember uh, it is is, uh, one of those cough, cough, uh, bloody napkin situations. Scarlet fever, that's what it is. Yeah, that's the one. Well, Uh, let's move on from that that's terrible though absolutely and by the way uh, maybe this isn't this isn't like a hot take or something but uh, i i've always wondered like why consumption why they call it consumption and it's about what you would think it's called consumption because one of the uh you know things that it causes is is serious weight loss Mm -hmm. so it basically it's almost as though it's like wasting you away or consuming you from within it's also been known as the white plague Mm -hmm. interesting or phthisis phthisis p-h-t-h-i-s-i-s couldn't tell you, but I think you probably <laughs> I think you I think you probably nailed it, Ben. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating Pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X visit tomboyx.com. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. But Ben, surely we've moved past all of this spit hysteria. I mean, first of all, again, you don't walk around uh, seeing people just spitting left and right anymore. Uh, sure, you see it occasionally. Definitely in the South, you still got your 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 your, your guys that like a, a little tobacco dip every now and then, which is super gross. But you do you. Um, just you know, keep, put put it in a cup. Put it in. Carry around your sputum flask. You know that would be a good use for those. Bring them back. Uh, but like you know, there have obviously been medical advances. Tuberculosis is not something you hear about so much anymore. At least in terms of it being a death sentence. Um, there are still anti-spitting laws on the books in New York City, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the thing in general. There's a lot of like old laws. Don't get jammed up. That's exactly right. There's a lot of old laws that stay on the books that just aren't really enforced. But technically, it is on the books in New York. City that you are that it is illegal to spit on a sidewalk, uh, on a, uh, a street, uh, or in a park. It's unlawful. Um, or any, and again, it, like it's, it's very much of, of the time a wall or stairway on a floor or of a street or place, uh, uh, or any public or private building or premises used in common by the public or in or on any public transportation facility. But Ben, where are we with the medical advances in terms of tuberculosis and where does that disease stand today? Well, I would, before we do that, I want to, I want to bring some, uh, bring some contemporaneous knowledge to our fellow ridiculous historians. We don't want to vilify saliva or spit. If, as you're listening to this, uh, you're generating two to six cups of spit today, and that's without counting what happens when you eat or chew gum. And you're making the most spit of the day in your mouth right now if you're listening to this in the late afternoon, in your relatively dry mouth if you're listening to it at night. The, the big epilogue we have to make is this. The anti-spitting movement did not manage to stop the spread of TB, and the the flask didn't do much either. Uh, The situation wasn't much better 20 years later. uh, Leading New York City Mayor John Francis Hyland to say in 1920, expectorating on the sidewalks and in public places is probably the greatest menace to health with which we have to contend. And luckily, there was light at the end of the tubercular tunnel. In 1943, a biochemist named Selman Waxman discovered that streptomycin, when isolated from a microbe found in the soil, could be an effective antibiotic for tuberculosis. This research led to him winning the Nobel Prize for his work and, uh, you know, providing, finally, a real treatment against tuberculosis. So hats off to you, Waxman. Uh, No celebratory spitting. 
I don't know. Do you, is there a culture where people spit celebratorily? Like up in the air, the way they shoot guns? Yeah. But then it would ultimately end up falling back down in your own face. It's all about the angle. It's true. It's all about the angle. You know, I don't know, Ben, but it it seems like it certainly could be. Mm -hmm. And so we hope that you have enjoyed today's tale and we want to hear from you. Should there be anti-spitting campaigns in the modern day? Do you live in in like a... What, what would be a weird phrase for this? Do you live in a spit-rich part of the world? Uh, what are people's spitting habits in your neck of the global woods? Uh, tell us all about it. You can find us on the internet. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Uh, we're on, Check out our Facebook page, Ridiculous Historians, and say hello to our new mods. Noel, we have three new mods on the page, so you're sure to run into them and maybe us when you drop by. You can also find us as individuals on the internet. Yes. You can. You can find me on Instagram at How Now Noel Brown. You can find me on Twitter, Ben Bolin HSW. Uh, you can also message me directly where I am at Ben Bolin on Instagram. Huge thanks to super producer Casey Pegro here in spirit today, along with Christopher Hasiotis watching down uh, uh. upon us from. Uh, <laughs> wow. It's time, gentlemen. Is it because I said spirit? Wow. Did that summon you? Did I summon you? (laughs) Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister. Jeez, happy new year to you too, guy. Yes, yes, yes. Partying like it's 2021. (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) I I don't know what year it is. Mm -hmm. It's been 2020 for so long, guys. I mean, like... like 2021's been off to a doozy of a start. It's been feeling like a whole year's crammed into a couple weeks. Yeah, it's been a a real humdinger, as they say. Uh, (laughs) Is that your spit take? I did not come here to spit upon you, uh, although I understand that's what you were talking about. It has nothing to do with the subject I I picked. By the way, for those unfamiliar with the Quister, (laughs) which is... (laughs) <laughs> who I am. I like to interrupt this podcast upon occasion and then quiz the gentleman on a series of scenarios, two of which are real, one of which is fake or made upsies. I don't even remember what I call it anymore. You say made upsies. You got it. You got made upsies, excellent. And then, and then they have to discover which of the three is the fake. And uh, they get three minutes to do so. They can ask me questions. And um, here's the thing. Uh, for some reason, and I don't know why, the subject of coronations was on my mind. And so the three scenarios I'll present to you are related somewhat to coronations. You've been watching a lot of The Crown in your uh, quarantine times? Uh, I've been watching a lot of, um, a lot of, of power grabbing, <laughs> let's it. say, uh, recently. Oh, okay. A lot yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but this, these are all, <laughs> these are all coronation stories. And of course, I give you the permission to ask me questions, but you must uh, obey a, an arbitrary rule of my choosing. Mm. In this episode, that arbitrary rule is that before you ask me any questions, you must preface it by quoting the song, You'll Be Back from Hamilton. Oh, wow. Okay. You literally, you literally can say you'll be back if you don't know the rest of the song. Or, <laughs> or, or da, 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 uh-huh. da, if you want to. I'll okay. know what you're going. Trust me, oh, I know is that, that the King song? It mm-hmm. is, in fact, King oh, George yeah. III's song. Mm-hmm. Jimmy you, Fallon does it too, I think. He does do it too. If you quote the reprise of You'll Be Back, I will boot you 
<laughs> has to be the has to be the first one, not the okay. referees. All okay. right, got, got it, got it, right. got it. Uh, so here are your three scenarios. The clock will stop, uh, start when I finish the last one. Guys, I haven't had enough coffee. To, how are you? Uh, a little. I, need, I could use another cup myself, but yeah. all in all, doing okay. Check yeah. this okay. out. I'm hiding in our office. I fill up this milk jug with coffee, and then I, I drink it out of this out, out of this mug. Oh, this is an audio podcast, so you guys can't see the. <laughs> yes, the it's a text. Brandy. It's a text stuff mug. It's very how nice dare of you to how, nice of you to one, represent. How dare you. Uh, <laughs> all right, so uh, that might be a made up season. So it's you know no you know what man I appreciate the psyop that you're doing asking <laughs> Noel and I how we're doing but you're not fooling us we know the rules right right we right. still got that gigantic clock in the background that's yep. why I'm in the office today we've got what three minutes three minutes after you do mm-hmm. do your bit okay mm-hmm. Noel I think we're one down actually if I, is that correct if I remember I do believe that's I believe right. so I believe so so now you get a chance to tie it all up once again and I I have faith in you boys so just let you know I have, I'm pulling for you I hate you so much right now all right. really am here here are your three <laughs> scenarios I will let you know when I am finished here we are <clears throat> scenario number one the oldest piece of coronation regalia still used in England from the 12th century is casually called the coronation gravy boat. It is a spouted bowl made out of gold and used to anoint the ascending sovereign in the ceremony with holy oil, and it escaped destruction and is still used in coronation services today. Scenario 2. Out of all the monarchs of England, only two have never had a coronation. One was King Edward V, who missed his coronation due to being a tad bit abducted by his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester. The second was another Edward, Eddie VIII, who abdicated the throne after ascending it but several months before his coronation was to occur. Scenario 3. In the short span of years between 1881 and 1947, Romania was a kingdom and followed the tradition of holding coronations, but the monarch's crown was not to be made of gold or silver or some other precious metal. No, the crown of Romania was made of steel. Moreover, that steel came courtesy of a cannon the Romanian army captured from the Ottoman Empire during Romania's War of Independence. Start the clock. Okay, I'm running for the clock, and go! Ben, that was a heroic leap. Okay, my friend, let's see. Gravy Boat, I'm going to count out. You think that one's fake? It feels fake to me, Gravy Boat. Okay, yeah, because i got to be honest with you, man. I have I have no... Uh, I, I, I am flying blind here, Noel. Um, can, I, can I... Really quickly, I just want to say, I feel like the, a Gravy Boat is a relatively modern invention hmm. uh, not modern modern but like I don't know that there would they would have been like uh in the zeitgeist enough to have like a royal one and do 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 do, do royalty really ever eat gravy I don't know maybe they do would somebody be anointed with oil in the modern day because this is still in use from oh hang on when you're gone I'll go mad excellent mr Bolin thank you yes what is uh, your question so uh First off, my question is, how's that song go? Because I'm totally off tune there. But uh, but uh, the question, uh, when you for scenario number one, when you say this uh, this thing is still in use, mm-hmm. is it still like in in this scenario? Is it still used to pour oil on people during coronation? It is still used to anoint holy oil to the sovereign, and it is only currently called the gravy boat. 
Mm. So it's more referring to the shape of it. You know what? I know that oil anointing is a thing that goes on during coronations. Mm-hmm. I'm, t- I'm I, now now you got me flipped on this one. You got me flipped, Jonathan. Da 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 da. Yes, Mister Butler. Uh, Oceans so, rise, empires fall. What's your question? So, so uh, was Romania a kingdom before the time period you mentioned? Uh, it was part of the Ottoman Empire, so it was not. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Hmm. Quick recap on number two, please. Quick yes. recap. So that uh, that was that there are only two monarchs of England who never had a coronation. One was Edward V because he was abducted by the Duke of Gloucester. And one was Edward VIII who abdicated the throne before, after he ascended the throne, but before his actual coronation. Ooh, that one feels plausible, too. And the uh, third one had to do with steel. Yeah, steel crown, Romania. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, I, you know what? Okay. I don't know how this is going to go, Noel, but we've got 24 seconds. Okay. okay. Uh, I'm going to say scenario one just because. I'm with you. Know. All right, let's lock, lock it, it in. in. Three, two, one. Locked. <sighs> Rats. Yay! What? You, you, you have solved my coronation puzzle. In fact, the oldest piece of coronation regalia is the ceremonial spoon, which is used to anoint the sovereign with holy oil. The reason why it's the oldest, by the way, is because all the other pieces of traditional coronation regalia were destroyed when Oliver Cromwell assumed the role of Lord Protector of England, and uh, thus were... Uh, all destroyed except for the one spoon, which still is a piece of the the coronation regalia to this day. So you you just you invented the royal gravy book. I did. This was, I did. That was okay. good. That was a good it was one. Very man. good. That, well, then you flew you. I ha, I thought that was the fake one to begin with. Yes. And then you flipped it. Yes. You flipped it on. You got me. You got me. Uh, well, because all, I, I all realized flummoxed. I realized that if I had worded it so that today we call it the gravy boat as opposed to the way I had worded it, that perhaps it would have tripped you up a bit more. And that's why I thought, did. well, well, it I've did. got an opportunity here. They didn't ask this question, but I'm going to slip it in anyway. No, <laughs> yeah, devious, devious as always. Uh, well done, sir. Still great scenarios and mm-hmm. uh, happy to be even Stevens again. So I guess that means we have to have you back, you know, uh, before too, too terribly long to give you a chance to earn back your title as the most, uh, what is it? A cringeworthy segment in, in all of podcasting. That is correct. That is correct. And if, if we haven't proved it this time, I do not know what will. Well, I've got to say, I've got to say, Jonathan, um, I'm going to be candid with you. We were flying blind in that one. Yeah. We we <laughs> lucked out on a 30% chance because uh, fortune favors the foolish sometimes. But kayfabe aside, it, it is an absolute pleasure to see you in 2021, man. Uh, you you doing all right? Uh, mostly yes, mostly yes. We're, 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 we're struggling by just like everybody else, just hanging in there as best we can and keeping spirits up as best we can while also trying to be as responsible as possible. Despite the fact that I am nefarious and evil, I don't, you know, want to make anyone sick. So I'm staying at home. Yeah. Cause you used to spit a lot, dude. Used to. <laughs> Listen, I've been spitting this. Why do you think I have the screen in front of the microphone? It's not to. It's not to protect against the the plosives. It's 
Literally, otherwise I have to dry out my mic every day. It's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, Jonathan's house is fit. Every room is fitted with the gold-encrusted uh, bejeweled spittoons. Yes, mm-hmm. it's the, the Prince of Flim is what they call me. Or what, are those, what, what was the other word we learned today? No, cuspidors? Cuspidors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cuspidors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we can't wait to run into you and uh, have a battle of the wits Again, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister. But in the meantime, while people are waiting for you to once again uh, emerge and ambush us on our own show, by the way, where can they find you, Jonathan? Well, you can find me on Twitter. That is at John Strickland, J-O-N. You can listen to Tech Stuff, the technology podcast I do that is now five times a week. And you can listen also to Large Nerdron Collider, a new podcast that looks at all geeky things, and we do crazy mashups, the most recent of which is The Matrix meets Super Mario Brothers. Interesting. Who's Luigi? What Luigi would be Morpheus. Yes. Dope. You have Agent Bowser, played by Dennis Hopper, clearly. Of, of course, yes. Yes, of course. You have to check it out, folks. Don't take our word for it. Uh, tech stuff and large Nerdron Collider are more than worth your time. Uh, you can see Jonathan where he's not quite always a villain. I don't know. Does that sound fair, Noel? What do you think? It does sound fair. He has tinges of villainy that pop through, but he is a little bit of a kindler, gentler Jonathan Strickland. So, you know, we'll go ahead and start it with you, John. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Huge thanks to Jonathan Strickland, the Quister. Big thanks to Christopher Hasiotis and Casey Pegram, super producer here in Spirit, both uh, Alex Williams, who composed our theme. A uh, big, big thanks to Eve's Jeffco. Big, big thanks to our research associate uh, who is on the forefront of expectorant policy in these United States, our very own Gabe Luzier. And uh, no, thanks to you, man. Uh, I think I think we learned a lot of a very gross stuff today. Yeah, we navigated these spitty waters uh, quite well, my friend, and we didn't even um, throw up in our mouths once. No, I spat a little. I think Casey will edit it out. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. 
You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.